pleasure to speak to you today. I have to admit to being a little intimidated up here on stage for one thing, but also because over the past few months, I, like you, have listened and been fed by the clear and bold gospel teaching of John Davis and Steve. And if not for their annual motorcycle trip this past week, you probably wouldn't have to put up with me. But I welcome the opportunity, and by God's grace, I'll try to do my best. Our text today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, and it's one of my favorites. In fact, these verses are a favorite of lots of people. It's often used as the text for Easter Sunday in many churches. And what Peter is writing to the exiles scattered throughout the known world is very relevant to the times that we are living in today. How do we keep our faith in the midst of tumultuous times? In the midst of a pandemic and in times of political and social unrest, racial injustice and fear. You may have heard it said that right thinking about the gospel leads to right living in the gospel. And what Peter has laid out here is instructive in helping us to live faithfully, joyfully, and peacefully in these troubled times. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We'll read from chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. John ended his sermon last week with the question, what world are you living in? Is it a dream world, a world of your own making, centered on yourself? Or are you living in the real world, created by God and with Christ at the center? Scripture makes clear that there are only two choices 
Either we are in Christ or we are not in Christ. And the distinction is infinite with infinite consequences. Peter is letting us know that for God's elect, we can live with joy, glorious and inexpressible joy, because of the great salvation we have through Jesus Christ. And this salvation is guaranteed, sealed by the Holy Spirit with Christ's own blood. But let me ask you, have you given much thought to the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus? Does it occupy much space in your mind? Have you, during this past week, been filled with joy at just the thought of what Christ has done for you? Of course, we rejoice when we hear good news, when we get answers to prayer, when we get word that someone is out of the hospital, or when our circumstances change for the better. But can we rejoice minute by minute in what we already possess, in a salvation that has no contingency, a salvation that does not depend on anything in this life, does not depend on good health or money in the bank, a possession that fills us with joy that is of greater worth than gold, a greater treasure than a U.S. passport, more valuable than even U.S. citizenship. Can we say that even if God did not do another thing for us, we have all we need in Christ? We possess a great salvation that has no expiration date, and that no man or spiritual power can take away. Kept in heaven for you, shielded and guarded by God's power. Can we admit that sometimes this great salvation we claim we have in Christ is not at the top of our list? It gets crowded out by so many worries and concerns. Is it possible that this salvation often fades from our view, sometimes just a memory? No longer is it the priority of our lives, not as relevant or significant in our daily lives as it used to be. What the Lord is saying to us through Peter today are words of encouragement and comfort. To consider the treasure that is ours in Christ Jesus. In this passage, we will find no marriage advice, no diet plan, no financial forecast. But perhaps we will find words to nourish our faith, to help us grow in Christ, and to continue to believe despite what we see around us. So let's look at this salvation that has been given to us. We'll look at three components, three aspects of this great salvation. And it's right there in the opening verses. First, there is the phrase, born again. In the NIV, it's called new birth. Secondly, there is living hope. And thirdly, an inheritance. 
For the individual believer, your being born again is something that has already happened in the past. You didn't come to the point where you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord unless God caused you to be born again. And your living hope is all about the present. What you are experiencing now, you possess a living hope as opposed to a dead or false hope or, or good luck or, or just vain wishful thinking. And your inheritance, this concerns your future, what is being stored up and kept for you in heaven entrusted to God what awaits you, what you have to look forward to. Praise be to God. The salvation of our soul means to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance, past, present, and future, kept in heaven for you. I want to begin today by talking about being born again. We should first note that being born again is utterly dependent on the mercy of God. Look at verse 3, the phrase, according to his great mercy. It starts and ends there. You need to know that your becoming a Christian is not your doing. It was not your fault. It is God's fault. Thinking of it another way, you are not to blame. You couldn't help it, and you couldn't stop it. Once God set his sights on you, you were helpless to resist. We can no more take credit for our new birth than we can for our biological birth. God made you alive with Christ when you were dead in your sins. You brought nothing to commend yourself, nothing of value to the deal, but God, because of his great love for us, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, you have been saved and called to a holy life, not because of anything you have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. These words of Paul apply to you just as they did to young Timothy. And what's more, this grace was given to you in Christ Jesus before the creation of the world. He chose you, not the other way around. It should make you feel dearly loved. If you're like me, I'm often hearing on my TV, it's telling me things like, I'm not getting all the benefits I deserve. Well, the psalmist declares this, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. But as far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. The depth and magnitude of his mercy and love we will never be able to fathom. And we will have all of eternity to reflect and meditate on his great love. And we may never get to the bottom of it. 
His mercy deeper than the deepest sea, farther reaching than the farthest points of the universe, and deeper than our own sin and failure. And His mercy demonstrated in Christ Jesus, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us, confined to a humble home in a backwater town, living among younger brothers and sisters. That would be difficult. Obeying his earthly mother and father, God who created the universe, Yahweh, working in his dad's first century furniture shop. And mercy and love expressed fully by his enduring the cross and scorning its shame. Enduring not only the pain of crucifixion, but bearing the shame as well. I recently watched a documentary on the life of Corrie ten Boom, the Christian woman from Holland who, along with her family, helped to hide Jews from the Nazis during World War II. Corey was eventually caught and sent to a prison camp where the worst of the indignities and horrors was to be paraded along with the other women prisoners naked in front of the guards. It was something she just couldn't bear. But then she considered Jesus and remembered that they also took away his clothes. She remembered the opposition he endured from sinners. We were bought with a price. John Piper says that we were bought with a price way beyond our sticker value. There is no one anywhere who deserves to be born again or to have a living hope or an inheritance. But according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because of his great mercy. In his great mercy answers the why question. And the resurrection answers the how question. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And the death Jesus experienced counts for my death. And the resurrection counts for me too. United in his death and resurrection. We are hidden with Christ in God. So that when he appears, we also will appear with him in glory. His life counts for me so that I have put on the indestructible life like his. My new birth, my being born again, makes me, in a very real sense, invincible. We are made invincible through our union with Christ. And this new birth fills us with an inexpressible joy, a glorious joy. Inexpressible. Words cannot express. It's literally indescribable. You may very well try, but it's difficult and often awkward. 
I became a Christian during my senior year of high school and went off to college excited and enthusiastic for the things of God. And I remember our first assignment in freshman English class was to write a paper on an experience, a unique experience that we had had. And I was all fired up and took the opportunity to write about being born again. Well, you might imagine what kind of grade I got on that paper. I might as well have been writing about being abducted by aliens, by writing so inexpressible. I got an F. My professor said that my writing, besides being terrible, was too subjective. Of course, I took it as he was persecuting me for my faith. But it was more likely just bad freshman writing. The point is, we, we can't explain our being born again with any degree of objectivity. We can barely make any sense of it to ourselves, let alone explain it to someone else. Only another believer could possibly understand. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. Born again. What happened? What happened to you? You can't exactly put your finger on it. What you once were, you no longer are. What you once were doubtful and skeptical of has now become a conviction. Forsaking other activities and pursuits, you now go to church. You pursue the things of God. You pray even for others, and you study scripture. You struggle and fail, but this conviction has blossomed into something worth living for, something worth dying for. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul gives about as good of an explanation as any. For God made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You haven't seen him with your eyes, but you've seen him with your heart. God turned on the light of your heart and the light of your mind and woke you up from the dead. The scales fell off and you saw Christ. This wasn't something handed down to you from your parents, although in some strange way they may have played a role. It was not part of your cultural heritage, and it is not to be confused with turning over a new leaf or breaking a bad habit, although that might have come along with it. And it is not some kind of logical deduction that you have figured out not some kind of enlightenment you've achieved. And your birth, new birth was not announced on TV. It wasn't written about in the newspapers. The world gave no notice. The world did not rejoice and cheer for you. This was not man-made. It had only one source, God himself, inexplicable. Why? 
because he loved us in his great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again. But wait, there's more. Into a living hope. And this is the second point. Into a hope that is not dead, not false. A living hope because Christ is alive. Our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, then our faith is in vain and there is no salvation. If there is no salvation, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. If there is no resurrection, you and I are just a gathering of pathetic and misguided people who have been tricked and conned. And even worse, we are guilty of perpetrating the biggest lie and fraud in human history, a hoax, giving false hope where there is none, and found to be false witnesses about God. But praise be to God, we do have a living hope because Jesus did rise from the grave. The Jewish leaders and the Roman government never did find the body because it was not there. He arose and we have reliable witness from those who saw the resurrected Christ. Mary Magdalene and the other women, Peter, John and the rest of the apostles. And then a group of over 500 people together at one time. Read 1 Corinthians 15 for yourself if you're not convinced. Oh, there were skeptics like Thomas and James, Jesus' own brother. And there were sworn enemies like Paul. But if the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not taken place, there would be no way to explain the early disciples' willingness to die. For no one would willingly die for a lie, but they would die for the truth, for they had seen the risen Christ. So if your living hope is Christ, then your hope is truth. You are hoping in something that is an historical fact. Our living hope is based not only on the reliable witness of the early saints, but also on the witness of all those who for the past 2,000 years have testified to the truth that Jesus is alive. And therefore our hope is alive. And as one writer put it to the degree, we make that hope central and relevant in our life we can withstand all the circumstances and dangers of this world. My living hope, your living hope, has to become the most important thing in our lives, the most important thing about us. Then we will be able to take all this life will throw at us. Pandemics, racial injustice, unemployment, 
difficult relationships, old age, sickness, and death. Peter is writing to exiles scattered throughout the known world, suffering griefs and all kinds of trials, persecution, tribulation, danger, and famine, and yet exiles with a living hope, a living hope that is the opposite of a dead hope or a false hope. If you have a favorite sports team, you may say, I hope my team wins the game today. But that's just wishful thinking. There are no guarantees. For sports fans like myself at this point, we're just hopeful that there's even a game. We really don't care who wins now. But let me ask you this. What are you most depending on What do you pin your life on? We may think there are no guarantees in this life, but there are some. I can give you a surefire prediction. In this life, you will lose all your property and all your possessions. You will lose all your money. You will lose all your freedom. And you will lose all your relationships, all your loved ones, friends, family, spouse. You see, life is not like sports. It doesn't grant winners and losers. In this life, we all lose. None of us gets out of this life alive. It is appointed by God for each of us to die. And we know this. We can't deny it. And yet we see people putting their hope in things they know cannot last, things that cannot save them. So where is your hope? One of the most common dead and false hopes is the hope in yourself. In American culture, we glory in this hope. It's called self-reliance. We love the man or woman who puts their hope in themselves. This is the great American story. Our favorite and most popular movie heroes. People who put their hope in their own ability to outsmart or outfight the other guy. And then there are those who take stock of themselves and put their hope in their circumstances. Their health. It's good. You've got your health. You have everything. Well, that's a lie. A false hope. Others may be putting their hope on their bank account, on their pension plan, on their family, or on their jobs. Some are pinning their hopes on a dream. On a dream that one day their lives will change for the better. Perhaps that's you. There's lots of people hoping and saying, if only. Dead and false hopes are hopes that are far too small, hopes that are far too insecure, hopes that are sure to fail in the end. But a living hope, a living hope is guaranteed, guarded by God's power. Jesus said where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. It's secure. And so you are secure. Our 
living hope is in God's hands. It's a hope that can change and motivate you. Hope in God enables us to rejoice, to rejoice and grieve at the same time. If you lose a friend or a job or even lose a spouse, you are free to grieve, but you know that your ultimate hope, your real hope, has not been touched by the loss. And what do we experience now as believers with the living hope? You are guarded and shielded. You believe, you trust, and you rest. <clears throat> I think it was Corey Ten Boom who gets credit for this quote. She said, when I look around me, I am distressed. When I look inside me, I am depressed. But when I look at Christ, I am at rest. You love Jesus Christ imperfectly, though you have not seen him. And that's incredible. You have come to value him above all else. We don't see him with our eyes, and yet we love him. We are learning that love is not a response to what we see, but it's a response to what we know. We have come to know Christ's true value. So he has caused us to be born again to a living hope and into an inheritance. And this is the final point. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. We will come into an inheritance that is imperishable. In other words, it will last forever. Never run out, never go away. There's no danger of losing it. If our faith and hope are set on this world, then they will perish. Kingdoms and economies have risen and fallen over the last 2,000 years, but only the kingdom of God has remained constant. Set your hope on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And your inheritance, it's undefiled. It's pure. It's good, morally good, perfect. No sin, no guilt, no shame. Your inheritance will never spoil, never grow old and rot. We will be made holy before him. That's what Christ has earned for you. You have been made holy. And your inheritance is unfading. It will never lose its freshness, its newness. Unlike that new toy, you will never grow tired of it. It will never be boring. It will never lose its value or its effectiveness. It will never diminish over time. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So your inheritance is safe, and so are you. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our failings, this inheritance is unchanged and reserved in heaven for you. Your inheritance is safe there, protected, shielded, 
and guarded by the power of God. When I think of inheritance, I always think money. And I did receive an inheritance once. When my mother passed away back in 1999, each of the six Travis children <clears throat> received a sum of money from the estate, money that my mom and dad had saved over the years. I think it was great that they were able to do that for their kids. We were heirs. But we knew, while this money came in handy, it would not last. It was an inheritance that was not imperishable. And slowly but surely over the years, it has been steadily drained until now it's almost gone. It's lost its value. It's an inheritance that's not worth much anymore. But Peter is telling us here that we have an inheritance that will not diminish and that defines our position in Christ and who we are in God. If you are in Christ, then you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Being a fellow heir with Christ means that we actually begin to partake of the blessings right now. Not only that, we have been blessed to partake in his sufferings as well. And there's more. Christ has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit and have been given the spirit not of fear, not of slavery, but of adoption as sons, so that we can call God Abba, Father. What I'm trying to say to you today is that for believers, the best is yet to come. You may know celebrated author and motivational speaker, Joel Osteen. He's written a best-selling book titled, Your Best Life Now. And in it, he writes this, happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned to live their best life now. God wants this to be the best time of your life. And as you put the principles found in my book to work in your life today, you will be living your best life now. You know what? Joel Osteen is right. Because if you are not in Christ, if God has not caused you to be born again to a living hope with an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, then this is your best life now. But if you are a child of God, this is not even close to being your best life. Eye has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God does promise us a full, rich, happy, satisfying, trouble-free life of absolute joy and peace in his presence. But not now, not yet. In fact, quite the opposite. Suffering, griefs, 
persecution, rejection, difficulty, temptation, pain and sorrow, sickness, and finally, physical death. No, for the Christian, this is our worst life now. Pain and sin and sorrow still abound. Our lives bear witness to the truth of the Bible. But thanks be to God, according to his great mercy, a great salvation that only comes from God. Seek it with all your heart, mind, and strength. New birth, living hope, and an inheritance kept in heaven for you. The great hymn writer Fanny Crosby, who wrote Blessed Assurance, and pass me not, O gentle Savior, was blind all of her life, blind for 94 years. But she would often say how thankful she was, how thankful she was that she was blind, because it meant that for her, the first thing she would ever see would be Jesus, her living hope, Jesus Christ, her inheritance. In this life, yes, pain, sin, and sorrow abound. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us so great a salvation. So how can we ignore it? How can we refuse him how can we turn away from Christ who has called us? For we are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to never lose sight of it. Help us to never lose sight of him who gave his life for us. Lord, we know that your love is better than life itself. And we rest on your promises. We will hope in your name. For your name is good. And if there is anyone here or watching from home, who still does not have a living hope in Christ, we pray that you, Lord, would cause them to be born again. Lord, even now, show them the light of your gospel. Show them your great mercy as you have shown us. Show them the face of Christ. Lord, who do we have on earth but Thee? Salvation belongs to You and You alone, O Lord. We pray this, trusting and believing in Jesus' name. Amen.